I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. Today, Norway has suffered two shocking, bloody and cowardly attacks. We don't know who has attacked us. Is still much that is unclear. But we do know that many are dead and many wounded. These attacks have been carried out on innocent civilians, on teenagers at a summer camp, on us. I have a message for those who have attacked us. You will not destroy us. We will not let you destroy our democracy and our efforts to make a better world. We are a small nation, but we are a proud nation. No one is going to shoot us to silence. This evening and tonight we must look after each other, comfort each other, talk together, stand together. And tomorrow we will show the world that, when it really matters, Norwegian democracy stands stronger than ever. This is part of the speech given by Jens Stoltenberg on the night of the massacre on Utøya in 2011. He was then the Prime Minister of Norway. The far-right terrorist Anders Bering Breivik had first bombed the government buildings in central Oslo, including Stoltenberg's office, then continued to a summer camp for the Labour Party youth movement. Disguised as a policeman, he hunted down the teenagers who couldn't get off the island. 77 people lost their lives that day. Was it perhaps because of this speech? And because of the way Jens Stoltenberg, throughout this testing period, stood erect and fronted the values of Western democracy, that Barack Obama and Angela Merkel put his name forward for the post of NATO Secretary General. Just three years after Breivik attacked everything that Stoltenberg represented, he would go on to front the entire alliance of Western nations willing to defend themselves from outside attack. And since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Stoltenberg has constantly been on our screens. Ashen-faced, earnest, compelling, direct speaking, but never sabre-rattling. just popped into my kitchen to make my morning coffee. Most mornings I take a cuppa up the hill behind my house and look out to the Oslo fjord and the surrounding islands. While I'm waiting, let me ask you, does it seem at all strange that at perhaps the time of its greatest challenge and peril, NATO has an uncharismatic, 
and technocratic leader chosen from one of the Alliance's group of smaller nations. Stoltenberg was, after all, due to leave NATO in September 2022 and take up a post as head of Norway's Central Bank. Coffee's ready. Come on along up the hill. I would argue that, at this time of great danger, NATO made a wise decision in persuading Stoltenberg to stay on. That he was the perfect person to steer the ship at this dangerous moment of Russian aggression, of NATO expansion to include Finland and Sweden, and of nuclear threats. And the reasons that it was an opportune move probably lie as much outside Stoltenberg himself. In the recent history of the Stoltenberg family, and most of all in Norway's recent history on the international stage. Well, here we are at the top of the little hill that is between my house and the river Glomma. From where I'm standing, the river runs below me, flowing out just here into the Oslo Fjord. And at the mouth of the river, the the fjord is about 25 kilometres wide, broadening out into the open Skagerrak. Now, about 10 kilometres to the south of me, out in the fjord, I can trace the wooded coast of the Valer Islands, the Valer Archipelago is the most sunny spot in Norway. In the summer, its population rises tenfold, from 4,000 to 40,000. And one of the people returning to his holiday home on Valer every summer since he was born 63 years ago is NATO's Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg. Sonja and I spent a day out on Valer during the summer and our path took us past the Stoltenberg summer house. No evident signs of raised security. If you didn't know which family it belonged to, you'd hardly notice it. An inconspicuous holiday home, not a lot different from many others on Valid, as, I suppose, one would expect in a liberal democracy known for its flat class structure. However, the reason I've come up my hill is rather to point out some other things that are typical of modern Norway. Things over which Stoltenberg has had no control, but which have influenced the direction of his life and work. If I turn round and look northwards, look past the buildings of Frederikstad along the river, look past the local woods, then about 13 kilometres away I can see pricking the sky like a needle. The high factory chimney of Borregård Industries in the neighbouring town of Sarpsborg. Today it's a huge industrial complex, working with the many derivatives 
of timber. But down by the base of that cloud-scraping chimney stands the original building, where it all started several centuries ago, the Borogord Manor House. In the midwinter of 1993, it was here, in this, by Norwegian standards, stately home, that the first highly secret talks were held between representatives for Israel and the PLO. Norway's Foreign Office had prepared the ground carefully, and so unprecedented was this meeting between the two enemies that an Israeli law prohibiting direct contact had been lifted by the Knesset just a few hours earlier. Of course, this meeting was the first faltering, tiny step that would lead to the signing of the Oslo Accords outside the White House in September 1993. It was, however, not in Oslo, but in Sarpsborg, by the River Glomma, that those initial steps were taken, with secret meetings at Borogor in January, February and March. Now, maybe you caught the film that was made about the Oslo Accords in 2021. It was called simply Oslo, and had Steven Spielberg as one of its producers. The whole film was in fact shot outside Norway, and Borogor Manor House in the film was, <laughs> well, it was quite something to see. For Borogor, the film creators used the Kachina estate in the Czech Republic, a magnificent empire-style castle in stone, fronted with a classical colonnade of pillars and shown in the film to be tucked away in some eternal forest off some gloomy fjord. It's infinitely more grand than the fairly humble timber farmhouse that is Borogor. And far from being hidden away in an endless forest, the house is pretty much in the centre of Sarpsborg, just off a main road and fully visible to all the workers in the county administration offices, which share the same grounds. Sorry, Spielberg, for these incredibly important meetings between Israel and the PLO, the Norwegian team who planned it all thought it better to be hiding in plain sight. Norway has, for more than a century, had a unique association with the always controversial concept of peace. For annually since 1901, it has awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, the other four Nobel Prizes being awarded by Sweden. However, since those secret talks at Borgård in the early 90s, Norway's role in the struggle for world peace has been more active. In fact, its diplomats have facilitated contact between warring parties in conflicts across the globe, from Central America to the Far East. And to quote from the policy document published online by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, promoting conflict resolution and reconciliation is a central aspect of Norwegian foreign policy.
Well, we've looked a few kilometres south towards the Valer Islands and the summer house of Jens Stolzenberg. We've looked a few kilometres north to the manor house where the Oslo Accords brought hope back into the Middle East stalemate. From the top of my hill, if I look east, that is straight across the river Glomma, my gaze meets the wooded slopes of Krokere, Crow Island, only four or five hundred metres away. Many local people have their summer cabins along the waterfront, and one of these is a man called Petter Skowen. He has his summer cabin at the southern tip of Krokere. Eight years ago, Petter Skowen, then 70 years old, thought it was time to hang up his boots and retire from his work as a peace facilitator. In a retirement tribute to him, in a main Oslo newspaper, he was described as probably the Norwegian alive today who has saved most human lives. Throughout the 90s and early 2000s, Skarren was one of the invisible Norwegians pulling strings behind peace negotiations in Colombia, Guatemala, Haiti and the Dominican Republic. He described his job as creating a framework and an atmosphere conducive to negotiation. Part of his technique to break down barriers between bitter enemies was to get them out here, to his summer cottage on Krokere. In 2008, the FARC guerrillas and the government of Colombia agreed a peace deal. And in its wake, Petter Skarren agreed to talk to our local newspaper. He related how Colombian Indians, guerrilla soldiers and Colombian generals were all invited during the peace negotiations to his summer cottage out by the fjord on Krokere. He would row them out on the water in his small boat and he could see how entrenched positions began to crumble. Together with our ambassador, Scarron said, I chose to leave no stone unturned. We established contact with the hardliners on each side and invited them to Norway. And when they came face to face, sitting on the veranda of my cottage, sharing things about their lives, their children, well, then they were just human, talking to human. <laughs> I remember two really tough military guys who I took out in my boat for my summer cottage at the tip of Krokere. One general turned to me and said, Well, if democracy means being able to float out to sea in a little boat, I might just give it a try. <laughs> well, my coffee is probably cold now. Let's go back down to the house. Since those secret meetings upriver from here in 1993, Norway has been closely involved in the peace processes of some 20 countries, including Afghanistan, the Philippines, Myanmar, Nepal, 
Sudan, Somalia, Sri Lanka and Venezuela. As I was planning this podcast, there was a very unusual gathering on Utøya. Yes, Utøya, the same small island outside Oslo, where Anders Bering Breivik massacred 69 teenagers in 2011. This gathering on Utøya was made up of people from rival factions from war-torn Libya, brought together far from their conflict to try and avoid a new civil war. Why Norway? Well, after the Cold War, small countries such as these were no longer of such immediate interest to the great world powers. The time was ripe for them to seek resolutions to their internal conflicts that maybe didn't involve pitting military might against guerrilla uprisings. In other words, there was a role for peace diplomacy, if any trustworthy peace broker could be found. Enter Norway. One of the leading researchers in this area is Marte Hayan Engdahl, today the deputy director of NORF, the Norwegian Centre for Conflict Resolution. In a recent interview with the research magazine Forskning, she says this, Norway is regarded as a trustworthy actor, most of all because we don't arrive with some fully worked out solution. We listen. We spend a lot of time with the various parties. And the reward for that is trust, which is probably the strongest currency in any peace diplomacy. In fact, it's no different from the way trust works in any other context. It helps if you keep your word and do what you said you were going to do. If you don't walk away when the going gets rough. If you are honest, even when things are difficult. Well, it's probably not escaped anyone that Norway's peace initiatives, pouring oil on troubled waters began at just the same time as its North Sea oil began to pour money into the national exchequer. In other words, Norway can afford to be generous, having the wherewithal to pay the huge bills for humanitarian and diplomatic aid, as well as a long-term commitment to a conflict area. So, to the question, why is a Norwegian technocrat... Jens Stoltenberg, speaking for NATO in its most perilous hour. Well, I think the first part of the answer is because of the trust Norway has earned itself through conflict diplomacy across three decades. The second reason is that the Stoltenberg name has already been known for 50 years on the international political and diplomatic stage, associated across the world with exceptional values, namely trustworthy public service, without recourse to self-aggrandisement. For Jens Stoltenberg, in adhering to these virtues, is following faithfully in his father's footsteps. Torvald Stoltenberg, entered into public service in Norway's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1971. 
and would go on to become the country's most important diplomat of his generation. When the Israelis and Palestinians met at Borogor in 1993, Torvald Stoltenberg was Minister of Foreign Affairs. It was thanks to his work in the background across several years that those meetings ever came about. In the early 90s, he was appointed by the United Nations as its special representative, working for peacekeeping during the Yugoslav Wars. There are, no doubt, many of the old guard in diplomatic circles who recognise that Torvald's integrity and sense of public duty have been inherited by Jens. Astonishingly, these same values have been on almost daily display to Norwegians in the last two and a half years by yet another Stoltenberg. Jens has an older sister, Camilla. She trained as a doctor, moved into medical research and then, in 2012, became the director of the Norwegian Institute of Public Health. Now, this was the official organ that led Norway's fight against the Covid pandemic, and she was its first officer and public face. What Anthony Fauci was to the people of the United States, what Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance were to the people of the UK, Camilla Stoltenberg was to Norwegians. That is, a wholly trustworthy medical voice at the forefront of the fight against disease and false information. The Stoltenberg brand has certainly not been a hindrance to Jens Stoltenberg's career. However, as I mentioned at the start, the personal leadership qualities he showed during the 2011 massacre more than qualify him for high public service on the international stage. Obama thought so. Merkel thought so. So, I want to round off with another excerpt from a speech he gave when Norway was reeling from those terrorist attacks. Here are the closing words from the speech Jens Stoltenberg gave as he looked out over a huge crowd. A crowd that gathered in Oslo a few days after the massacre at Utøya. Everyone holding aloft a red rose. To the young I want to say this. The massacre on Utøya was also an attack on the dreams that those young people had to help build a better world. Their dreams were shattered in the most brutal way. Your dreams can become reality. Starting tonight, you can carry the spirit forward. Do it. This is my simple request. Be active. Be concerned. Take part in an organization. Take part in debates. Use your right to vote. By using your vote, you affirm in the strongest way your belief in democracy. Thank you.
next time. Can energy from Norway keep the lights and heating on in Europe this winter? But for now, tusen tack för att du hörte på. Thanks for listening. And if you like the cool north, tell all your cool friends.